Hello and welcome to another edition of the Mile End Institute podcast. Today we're going to be talking about life in number 10 Downing Street. We've got three excellent contributors who all have a very varied experience of life in number 10 and they come from different backgrounds. Our first guest is Gavin Barwell, who's now Lord Barwell. He's a Conservative life peer who's sat under this title in the Lords since October 2019. Prior to joining the Lords, he was an MP in the Commons, elected in 2010, and then he became Chief of Staff to the Prime Minister, Theresa May, from the 2017 election to the end of her time in Downing Street, which was, as everyone will remember, one of the most turbulent periods in recent British political history. From the opposite side of the fence, politically anyway, we have my Queen Mary colleague, uh, Dr. Patrick Diamond, who's Senior Lecturer in Public Policy now at Queen Mary, University of London. But before he went back into academia, Patrick was Senior Advisor in Number 10 and the Cabinet Office for over 10 years. And he's also the author of a number of books and reports on social and public policy. He's also been a councillor in the London Borough of Southwark. Our non-political guest today is Jill Rutter, who is Senior Research Fellow at the UK in a Changing Europe think tank. Previously, Jill was Programme Director of the Institute for Government, uh, and she still does quite a bit for the IFG, and she is a very experienced former civil servant. So we have a Chief of Staff to a Conservative Prime Minister, we have a Senior Advisor in the Labour years, and we have a senior civil servant, which I think gives us a really good rounded take on life in number 10. I thought I'd ask you to all answer this first question, maybe starting with you, Gavin. If you could just tell us a little bit about the particular role or roles that you played in number 10. Did you have a formal job description? And did it really very accurately describe what you did? It's a good question, Tim. It's a, it's a the question about the job description is one I asked the Prime Minister when she offered me the job. So the, the simple answer to that is no, there is no job description. What does the job involve? I think the starting point is you're obviously the Prime Minister's most senior political advisor. And you manage the team of political advisors in Number 10 and across the whole government to a lesser extent. Although obviously special advisors in other departments, their main reporting line is to their minister. Uh, and with the principal private secretary, the senior civil servant in number 10, you try and sort of set the tone, if you like. What you do after that very much depends on the nature of the prime minister you're serving and the dynamic uh, of the government at that time. But in my case, uh, I spent a significant chunk of time acting as a go-between between between the prime minister and, and various ministers in trying to resolve policy differences between them. Got involved a little bit as a sort of back channel Uh, in the Brexit negotiations. Uh, So you're kind of like a a human Swiss army knife that can be deployed uh, wherever trouble is uh, at its its greatest at any particular point in time, I would say. Thanks very much, Gavin. Patrick, what about you? Did you have an official job description? And if so, did it accurately describe what you did? Definitely no official or indeed unofficial job description. Um, It's fair to say that I think that what one was doing from sort of one month to the next did obviously vary, change, shift according to, you know, the big policy and political issues of the moment. When I started in number 10, I was working for Andrew Adonis, who was then the head of the Downing Street Policy Unit. So the the first few years that I spent in number 10, I was working largely on education and skills uh, issues, um, other areas of public policy as well, particularly social exclusion. I also found, though, that as the most junior member of the policy unit at that time, 
I tended to be told to go and do all the things that other people didn't want to do. So yeah, there was a lot of variation and um, obviously an enormous amount of variety in what I was doing. Um, the predominant period that I was in government, I worked obviously in Tony Blair's number 10 in the policy unit. I did spend sort of 18 months um, working in Gordon Brown's policy unit towards the end of the period of the Labour government. And yeah, there was some pretty significant differences in terms of how the Blair number 10 and the Brown number 10 worked, which obviously impacted on your time as an advisor. When I was working for Blair, there was quite a strong emphasis on really working very closely with departments, but also being quite prescriptive with departments about uh, what should be happening in terms of policy, policy direction. Whereas I think in the Brown number 10, the, the approach was much more that you essentially left departments to get on with it, but you did intervene in sort of particularly significant or crisis situations. But it was quite a different governing style. So I think that does make a big difference in terms of how you operate as an advisor. So in other words, the man at the top or the woman at the top uh, makes quite a big difference. Jill, what about you? So I was in number 10 quite a lot earlier. As a civil servant, I was one of two civil service members of the then John Major Policy Unit under Sarah Hogg. There are about eight or nine of us in total, I think much smaller than number 10 operation is now. So I was one of two civil servants. My fellow civil servant, though, ended up leaving and is now a conservative life peer. My peerage hasn't yet appeared, but anyway. And because I was on the civil servants, I got what was known in number 10 at the time as sort of guardian reader's agenda. Remember, this was a conservative conservative administration. So I got the issues the prime minister wasn't very interested in, which were local government, environment, health. I got a bit of transport uh, later on. So I got the sort of ones that were not areas where there was a big policy agenda. And I was very much there. Uh, I was very conscious of being a civil servant. I have to say my conclusion was the policy unit wasn't the right place for a civil servant to work. I would have much rather been in the private office. Uh, I'd been John Major's private secretary in the Treasury. It's one reason why I was recruited. So it's quite a personal recruitment. So no real job description. It was you know, largely firefighting, keeping tabs on what was going on. I always felt very awkward when we got into the more political discussions of how would we appeal to this set of voters or another set of voters? Because a civil servant, that's actually not my job. My job is for the politicians to work that out and then for me to be advising them on how to do it. So what did you actually do in those discussions? Just keep quiet or...? I was very clear that I wanted out. And so I was there from 1992 to 1994. I was very clear I wanted out before any sort of run-in to an election because I thought that really wasn't a civil service role to be there then. But what you would do is you basically... We'll put advice to the Prime Minister, Secretary of State for X is thinking of doing this, this looks okay, or you should be very worried about this, you might want to haul them in for a chat. A lot of it was hand-holding. I remember Virginia Bottomley was uh, Secretary of State for Health at the time, and she kept on getting very, very, very frustrated that she wasn't having very many meetings with John Major, and he was seeing John Patton, the Education Secretary, all the time. So I was always saying, you know, Jill, why can't I get to see him? Why can't I get to see him? because I was the face of number 10 over in Department of Health. And I would say that's because he thinks things are going okay in health and he doesn't think it's they're going okay in education. So, you know, just keep your head down and it's all fine. So, uh, so it was, yeah, it was interesting and intriguing, but as I said, not a conventional civil service role. Yeah. Uh, Gavin, I mean, I can imagine that you also, uh, in your role as chief of staff, had to do quite a lot of hand-holding of ministers. Yeah, so the, the, the situation that I inherited when I came in immediately after the 2017 election was quite a toxic one. Clearly, 
the, the, the previous number 10 operation had not had a good relationship with a number of senior cabinet ministers. So it was quite a job to do there repairing some of those relationships. But then obviously also, you know, reflecting on what Patrick was saying after the 2017 election, we didn't have a majority. So the prime minister's position, both within her own government, wasn't as strong as it had been before the general election. And effectively, for those two and a bit years, we were governing in coalition with Parliament. You know, we had a confidence and supply agreement with the DUP, which wasn't, you know, wasn't wholly reliable on every issue. And certainly without that, we didn't have a majority at all, and even with it, a very, very slender one. So in practice, there was a huge amount of work to do to engage with government ministers, to, to negotiate with them over what the prime minister wanted to do and what, what they wanted to progress. And then also sort of parliamentary liaison. So we set up a, a legislative affairs team in number 10, which I was I was amazed we hadn't had there previously. I suppose most of the time British government is used to getting its way in Parliament, uh, but that clearly wasn't going to be the case for our two year period. So, yes, a lot of that kind of work to do. I mean, and, and presumably, um, you know, the the impression over those two years is that Brexit began to dominate the agenda. Did that get very frustrating for ministers in the sense that they didn't feel that, you know, their particular department was being given enough attention or, or enough love by Number 10? Because Number 10 was you know, pretty obviously um, consumed with um, trying to get a withdrawal agreement and then trying to get it through Parliament. I think, I think ministers understood the political reality that that was the sort of existential issue for the government. But it was frustrating for the prime minister, for all of her ministers and for the civil servants that work for us. You know, I think if you if you take Jill's job that she was describing, the civil servants in number 10 and the political advisors that were working on Brexit were basically frantic for the whole two and a bit years, uh, whereas probably some of the other people were not as busy as they would normally be used to. Uh, and actually, I think if you asked many of the people that worked in number 10 during that period, the last eight week period from when Theresa had announced that she was going to stand down as leader of the Conservative Party to her actually leaving Downing Street was in, in one way one of the most enjoyable periods because we had eight weeks when, although we couldn't touch Brexit, we did make some significant progress on a number of domestic policy issues. So if you think, for example, a huge decision to commit the government to achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2050, that decision was taken in that final period after she'd announced she was standing down as Conservative Party leader. I mean, going back, Gavin, to something that, that Jill spoke about, which was this, you know, sometimes difficult and blurred line that um, civil servants have to tread. I mean, did you have any experience of, of that? Obviously, you weren't a civil servant, but did you find that civil servants sometimes found it difficult to, to know exactly <laughs> where they should put themselves in particular conversations? I suspect it's a bit easier now than it was in Jill's time because there are a lot more political advisors in number 10. So, you know, I actually, I, I would have nearly overlapped with Jill. I, I was a political advisor in what was then the Department of the Environment from 1995 to 1997. And I found that completely different experience to being a political advisor in number 10. In the, in the DOE, there were two of us, hundreds of civil servants. So your job was very explicitly to be the political voice in the room. Whereas in number 10, you've got, a significant number of political advisors and a significant number of civil servants. And to a degree, the job is to form an effective, cohesive team to deliver the prime minister's agenda. But I think because you've got far more of those political people now there, it's probably easier for civil servants to steer clear of those things that are rightly the preserve of people who are allowed to get involved in politics. Okay. And Patrick, what about you? Uh, I wondered, you know, what you thought of that division of labour, if there was one between the, the civil servants and the, the special advisors. 
like you. Well, yeah, certainly there was uh, a lot of discussion at the time after Blair obviously had been elected in 1997 had come in with this big majority. I think what Gavin was just saying a few minutes ago is really important, by the way, on that point, which is that we tend to talk about the prime minister as having a certain degree of power. And of course, there's been a lot of discussion in the last couple of decades about the British prime minister becoming a very powerful figure, comparisons made with the presidency, either in the United States or, or the French presidency. The prime minister has become a presidential figure in that sense. The really important point to remember, as Gavin underlined, is that the power of the prime minister is very contingent and shifts and varies enormously over time. When I was first in number 10, which was just after the 2001 general election, Tony Blair was still a very powerful prime minister because, of course, he delivered two historic landslide victories for the Labour Party. There was a view that he had delivered those through his own talent as a politician, his charisma, his leadership of the party. Whereas I think in the later period, particularly the period when I was working for Gordon Brown, situation was quite different. Obviously, Gordon Brown's position was somewhat weaker due to a variety of factors. And that meant that the way that Number 10 operated, the way that it related to departments was really quite different. So I think that point about the shift in the power of the prime minister is really important. Um, on the point about civil servants, I mean, when I was in Number 10, similarly, I think, to Jill's experience, there were some members of the policy unit who were actually um, career civil servants who were seconded into number 10 for two or three years to perform roles normally as policy advisors in specialist policy portfolios. I think generally speaking, you would find it difficult if you sat in the meetings to really at times distinguish between who was a political advisor and who was a, a civil servant in the sense that I think everybody was there to try to carry out the prime minister's agenda. I think it was also the case that those individuals were broadly sympathetic to what the government was trying to do in those particular areas. Um, so in that sense, I think number 10, rather than necessarily always being dominated by political advisors, is actually an interesting fusion or synergy between civil servants and political advisors. And I think certainly for number 10 to work effectively, you do need good civil servants in there as well as political advisors, because civil servants are often the ones who know better how to actually make the Whitehall machine deliver um, and how to get the results that the prime minister wants. Jill, presumably you'd agree with that. I agree with the need to work with the civil service. Um, my worry is, I mean, I, there was nobody else giving the prime minister political advice on things like health and the environment. So that's, I think, where I found the found it awkward, not actually on on where we had agreed things that we wanted to do. And I worked very closely with the advisors, the political advisors in the environment. They were immensely helpful. But I did think the sort of defining new offers, you know, sitting around thinking about what could we offer to persuade even more pensioners to vote uh, Conservative at the next election, that I thought was a bit outside my normal job description and where I started to feel a bit awkward, which is why I wanted to go before the election. I just wanted to pick up, though, one point about uh, about sort of ministers' enthusiasm for number 10. Virginia Bottomley was very much on the exceptional end of the curve in wanting lots of face time with the prime minister. There are a lot of other sectors of state in varying governments who the last thing they want is number 10 trying to throw its weight around. They actually really like you know, just being given their own uh, fiefdom and getting on with it. And the last thing they want is some knock from number 10 uh, sitting in on their meetings and reporting back and trying to cramp their style. So I think that's one of the other things you have to bear in mind is what's that relationship, what's the power relationship. And I was there in, in a way in a similar time to Gavin because I landed in the number 10 policy unit the week that the Danes voted no over their Maastricht referendum. And I think it's possible to mark that week 
as the sort of turning point, even before Black Wednesday in the major premiership of when he started to lose control of his party over Europe way back, uh, way back then, because he'd also come back off the back of a surprise election victory, slightly different to Gavin's situation in 2017. But that started to ebb and increasingly, I remember, you know, we were dominated by trying to get the Maastricht bill through, having to make concessions. You know, we kept on being told by Sarah Hogg, well, you know, we need to give these, you know, give some red meat to the, you know, the right of the Conservative Party because, uh, because we're enforcing Maastricht down their throats. You know, lost the majority, had confidence votes when the political staff in number 10 were all pulled in to be told you guys might be out of a job tomorrow. Uh, and Sarah would say, well, I'm not going to talk to you, Jill, or to Lucy, the other civil servant, because you're safe. You know, you'll just go back to your departments or hang on if the prime minister loses, whereas these guys are all out of a job if uh, if he goes down. So it's, it's quite a sort of uh, tense environment through some of that. Mm, I can imagine. And of course, one of the other things you're doing is not only managing Parliament, managing ministers, but Gavin, you're also managing in some ways the perception of the media has of, of number 10. I mean, how much of your time was spent worrying about that? I think the sort of overall perception of number 10, not a huge amount. I think you focused more on both, you know, the grid, the, the stories that you were trying to tell over a period of, you know, the next couple of months and trying to make sure the work was being done in departments to get ready for those. And then also, you know, you are just absolutely on any given day at the mercy of events. So, you know, what story breaks uh, and how how quickly can you, you know, I think probably if you, if you take the time period over which the three of us have worked in number 10, the news cycle has shortened and shortened and shortened. And therefore, the need to quickly be able to respond to a breaking story and work out how the Prime Minister wants to, what position the Prime Minister wants to take in response to that has become ever more urgent. Patrick, what about you? I mean, Tony Blair, you know, famous for worrying about the media. Did you have any sense that that, that was a overriding preoccupation at times in number 10? I think it was obviously an overriding preoccupation at certain moments. I think particularly in the early phase of the government when they come to power, I mean, really before my time in Downing Street, but certainly for the first few years, I think number 10 under Blair was very sort of media conscious. And that was partly also driven by the very powerful personality of Alistair Campbell, who was the dominant figure, obviously, in Downing Street, but also really across government communications. So that did make the the operation generally, I think, quite inclined towards managing the media as being a central priority or central preoccupation. But that did shift. I think by Blair's second term, there was a much stronger focus on policy and a realisation that the kind of short-term tactical victories that you could win in the media were really ones that were, you know, the prize was not that great, that if you wanted to really make an impact and make a difference politically, it was about big policy victories, not about winning the battle um, for daily headlines in the newspapers. I think it's also true to say, as a perhaps you know, as a candid reflection, that the, the, the Downing Street operation under Blair learnt some lessons about the dangers of overdoing communications. You'll remember some of the policies that tended to be announced. I think there was a famous case of um, Blair announcing that yobs who were caught committing acts of antisocial behaviour would be marched to a cash point and told to hand over £50 as an on-the-spot fine. Um, that was a signature policy announced in a major Blair speech that, of course, quite quickly collapsed uh, on impact because it was found to be sort of deeply um, undeliverable and impractical on all sorts of levels. 
So I think it's also true that, you know, prime ministers and their senior staff go through a learning process where they realise that being too media conscious can actually be somewhat dangerous politically. And it is, as I say, better to try to stick to doing longer term policy thinking and perhaps be a bit less preoccupied by the sort of daily battle the headlines in the media. We've already talked a little bit about this. I mean, uh, Gavin has. Jill, I I wondered, you know, how easy or difficult is it for people inside Number 10 to maintain a sense of strategy when actually quite a lot of the job involves day-to-day firefighting? When I was there with a very small uh, Number 10 policy unit and a lot of events going on, uh, particularly the battle over Maastricht, there was strategy, but I didn't think that was that much strategy out of number 10. I mean, the big attempt at domestic policy reorientation, which went very badly wrong, I think, from the number 10 perspective, from the prime minister's perspective, was back to basics, which uh, John Major never intended to have the sort of moralistic overtones that it acquired from the way it was spun, uh, we thought, by conservative central office. He intended much more to be about core bits of public services and making sure they were sort of fulfilling their basic things and sort of, you know, one of his big signature policies, which he launched a bit before I was there, was the Citizens' Charter and trying to make public services more responsive. I think that's actually had quite some quite long-term payoffs, even though it's a bit mocked at the time. But we were quite battered by events. That's why I was thought, actually, you know, by Patrick's time, the fact that Tony Blair had invented the strategy unit and said, actually, it's unrealistic to expect that much long-term thinking to be done in the people I'm also tasking with protecting my back day-to-day and doing things. I mean, obviously, some big beasts in the Blair Policy Unit. The fact that they had this separate apparatus, the strategy unit, was quite a sensible addition to the resources that the Prime Minister could call on. And we certainly had nothing like that capacity to try and do any real long-term policy development. There was long-term policy development. Under major, I mean, I thought, in the wake of Black Wednesday, put in place a really quite good economic policy regime, you know, with inflation targeting, repairing the public finance, things like that. Uh, But certainly in the number 10 policy unit, there was very limited scope for doing reasonable policy work. We didn't have any analysts to draw on. It's quite difficult to get anything very much out of departments. We at Institute for Government did a report about the centre about six years ago, and somebody who was working in number 10, I think in the Blair or Brown government, said there needed to be a Freedom of Information Act for people in number 10 so that the Treasury could disgorge some information to number 10 because, by and large, it would withhold all the key documents and the spreadsheets and things like that. Gavin, um, obviously... 2017, you know, number 10 is bigger than it was back in the day um, for Jill. Do you still think that number 10, the, the, the prime minister, actually needs more staff, needs more infrastructure? Is, is the centre of government underpowered? So I think the key is to use the cabinet office. And, and make that effectively part of number 10. So I would say one, one of my bits of advice to any prime minister would be think very carefully about who you appoint as either deputy prime minister or first secretary of state or chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, whatever job title you're going to give to the minister running cabinet office. Because there is a huge amount of resource there that can be channeled in support of number 10. And one of the real frustrations I had, you you were asking me earlier about Brexit dominating airtime, as it were, is that I think we spend far too much time in our politics trying to come up with new policy to announce 
to satisfy the media's longing for news and nowhere near enough time analysing how well the policy we've already announced is, whether it's being implemented, and if so, is it doing the things that it was designed to do? And there are some really good officials in the Cabinet Office that, that work on that that should get more of the Prime Minister's bandwidth, as it were. Patrick, I mean, you had the delivery unit, of course, didn't you, set up by Tony Blair. I mean, how successful was that, do you think? I think it was a successful innovation. I mean, it added a dimension to the number 10 prime ministerial operation that didn't previously exist. And as Jill was just saying, the policy unit plays this role of, work, of really working closely around the prime minister, being very responsive to the day-to-day needs of the prime minister. So if you want to do long-term policy thinking, but also if you want to focus on the kind of task of delivering policy, then you probably do need other advisors to do it. Hence why under the Blair Premiership, both the delivery unit and the strategy unit were established in Downing Street. I think there are obviously issues and, you know, serious questions that you have to consider, though. I think one reflection on that period is that the capacity that Number 10 had obviously did increase and was strengthened. Did it lead to an overly centralised approach to the reform and modernisation of the public services? I would say, with the benefit of hindsight, it did. Not, which is not to say that many of the policy initiatives that were developed in that time were the wrong ones. On the contrary, there was a lot of useful reforms introduced, but there was, I think, too much of a gap between where the centre of government was and where the people who were implementing the policy on the ground were. So I, I do think one has to be very careful about strengthening number 10 to the point where you do get into an overly centralised style of policy making. It also, if I could just say quickly, comes, I think, to another debate, which Jill and others are very familiar with, which is about whether or not in Britain we should establish a prime minister's department. Um, shortly after Tony Blair was elected in 1997, the then minister without portfolio, Peter Mandelson, wrote him a memo which basically recommended that he should establish a prime minister's department that did really what Gavin was just describing, that brought the cabinet office and number 10 together into a kind of formal entity, which would be a series of offices and units that would serve the prime minister. I think there's a very interesting debate about whether that would be a good move in the medium to long term for British government to make. Clearly, there are downsides to a big prime minister's department, not least the fact that departments may feel that they were more likely to be uh, sidelined or marginalised or indeed subject to pressure from number 10 to too great an extent. Um, but at the same time, actually formalising the prime minister's capacities and powers and institutionalising them may be a useful move. I think if I could just say finally that one of the problems about British government is that because it's quite flexible, we're constantly reorganising it, whereas it might be better to try to stick with a structure and see how that works rather than reinventing it every time a new prime minister comes to power. Yeah, Jill, what's your reaction to that? Uh, I'm quite with Patrick on this. I think we do offer prime ministers quite an underpowered centre. I think one of the tricks for the centre is how to actually work collaboratively with departments rather than sort of work in opposition to departments, because I think... uh, There's a lot of knowledge, particularly around implementation, that may not even be held in central government departments, but certainly isn't held at number 10. I thought one of the big things about the strategy and delivery unit was that they did actually manage to attract people in from a variety of backgrounds. I think one of their strengths was they weren't just sort of, you know, standard civil servants. They were a mix of people brought in from different disciplines. I think that was that was really quite helpful. So I do think that's that's quite useful. I mean, one of the eternal problems of the British government is its difficulty in grappling with um, issues that don't fall neatly to, uh, to within 
departmental boundaries. And Gavin, I think, was mentioning the fact that the government, you know, part of Theresa May's legacy is the net zero target. You know, the bit we don't have at the moment is a uh, worked out plan to deliver net zero. And that's the big next challenge to Boris Johnson's government. At the moment, that's being coordinated from the business department. Uh, we're just doing a report, actually, which I think says, actually, if you really want to run that, you're going to have to run that through a, a bigger central unit uh, because you can't do that from a line department. It just doesn't have the authority to knock heads together. So I, I think one of our big problems is that every prime minister comes in, and actually Boris Johnson is quite notable for not doing this, but most prime ministers come in and want to define themselves against their predecessor. So Gordon Brown said, Tony Blair had too many advisors. I'm not going to have so many advisors. I discovered that was a bit of a mistake. David Cameron comes in and says, I'm not having all this micromanaging apparatus that those new Labour guys had. So I'll bin their strategy unit. I don't need, uh, don't need a delivery unit. Two years later, reinvents the uh, delivery unit, renaming it the implementation unit because he actually does want a progress chase. And then... Yeah, he said, not, not as many advisors, I'm not going to do that, brings in more advisors, obviously you need them to make the coalition work, you've got to work out a way of supporting the Liberal Democrats as well. So I do think we, we run this problem that there isn't a sort of standing set of capacities that we offer prime ministers, and they just, just take it as read and then they tweak. Rather, we, uh, we leave them to sort of say from opposition, well, why have you got all these people? I can run my opposition with very few people and this is just bloating and stuff like that. And then they get in and discover that all their colleagues have these big government departments to call on, big budgets, big resources, and they have very little. And then they sort of, you know, scrabble around for what they can pull together with a bit of help from the cabinet secretary. And of course, the desire to signal uh, a difference with one's predecessor isn't always just institutional. It can sometimes be in some ways quite personal. I mean, Gavin, for you, I guess, coming in, uh, after the 2017 election, you inherited a vision of, of Number 10 that some ministers didn't like under Nick Timothy and, and Fiona Hill. I mean, were you very consciously trying to move away, if you like, from the way that they ran it? Yeah, I mean, it, actually, it was, it was one of the strangest things about the job because I didn't know Fiona very well, but I'd worked very closely with Nick as housing minister and found him first class. So I was very surprised when I came in the degree of anger there was among a number of cabinet ministers about the way Number 10 had been run and also the sort of mood in the building. But I don't think it was just me. You know, the prime minister, I think, realised that that relationship needed to be got right. Uh, and it was one of, one of the things she said to me when she appointed me that she wanted that to improve. So I think one of the one of the things you have to watch out for when you're doing the chief of staff job, there's a there's a great book called The Gatekeepers, which is a history of the office of chief of staff to the president of the United States. And each chapter studies each different person to hold the job. And at the end, they all offer advice. And I read it in my first few weeks in number 10. And the best bit of advice in there was to think of your job title and remember that the word staff was the most important, not chief. You're there to implement the prime minister's agenda, not to come up with your own agenda. And so, you know, she wanted to get her relationship with her colleagues in a better state. And she was very conscious about how upset they were and the parliamentary party as a whole were. And, and so clearly part of my remit was to try and make number 10 a happier ship and get a better relationship between the prime minister and her senior ministers. 
So actually, Gavin, that takes me on quite nicely to the uh, question I, I was going to, um, you know, begin to finish up with. So I'll ask it to you first. What what would your advice be to anybody who were to take on your job as chief of staff? I'm going to answer the question in two ways. My advice to a future chief of staff would be that you need to know the prime minister's mind. And you need to make sure that when you are directing civil servants, and I don't mean formally directing in the management sense, your credibility in the job rests on accurately representing what the prime minister wants done. And if you if you don't know that, or if you sometimes try and insert your own views into the process, you are going to destroy your own credibility. But if I can cheat in answering your question, I would also give a bit of advice to prime ministers, which is that I think that our culture in this country is placing too much reliance on advisors. And the most important thing for a prime minister is to get their relationship right with their senior colleagues. You know, I think Patrick is right that we we at times can have an increasingly presidential system. But I think the truth is you cannot run the whole British government from number 10. And a successful government therefore relies on a prime minister working well with a group of people who are both senior colleagues and potentially sort of long term have got their eye on the prime minister's job. And so getting those relationships right seems to me to be the centre point of a successful government. So cabinet matters. Um, Patrick, what about you? Um, imagine you're giving a, a, some advice to someone who's going in, maybe, you know, at the beginning in, in a, a fairly junior capacity in, into number 10 as a special advisor. What would you say to them? I think that really reflecting on um, the other comments that have been made, although it sounds like a trite sort of managerial statement, I think relationships are really fundamentally important, particularly if you're operating out of number 10 in, in that kind of role as a special advisor working in the policy unit, maybe as someone who's relatively junior early in their career. I think the relationships that you have with different actors around you really determines whether or not you can do the job successfully above and beyond um, the point that you do have to have the confidence of the Prime Minister and you need to be able to speak authoritatively about what it is that the Prime Minister wants. You, you obviously do have to know the Prime Minister's mind, you have to know their intentions, you have to know their priorities, you have to know where they want to take policy. But in order to, to be able to get progress and drive it through on behalf of the Prime Minister, you need to have relationships with the key players that are really effective. That means obviously with your colleagues in number 10, not just in the policy team, but obviously in the different parts of number 10, including on the communications and media side, but also absolutely critically, it means having good relationships with the civil service, particularly in the department that you are responsible for working with. You need to be able to have you know, good, trusting conversations with those civil servants in which you can discuss policy in a candid way. I think you also need to have relationships, though, with the professions and the policy people who are actually implementing the policy on the ground. In my case, for a lot of the time I was in number 10, I was working on education and skills policy. So in particular, the relationships I had with people working in schools, with teachers, with head teachers, people working in further education colleges and the higher education sector. Now, all of that was absolutely critical, both to giving the prime minister good advice, but also obviously getting things done and driving through policy priorities. So, yeah, I do think above and beyond having a good relationship with the PM, which is clearly absolutely essential to the role, you do need to be able to sustain good political relationships with the key actors around you, both in number 10 in the departments and beyond throughout the public service. OK, and Jill, finally um, to you, what, what advice would you give to a civil servant going into number 10 for 
the first time? Well, I think there's a big difference depending on what job you're doing. The proper place for the civil servants is, I think, in the uh, private office, and that's a very clear job. You know what you're doing. Obviously, you're going to have to have good political antennae. I, I would echo Gavin that the most important thing, remember, whoever you are on number 10, is that you have zero inherent authority. You only have any authority because you are speaking on behalf of the Prime Minister. You're not there to pursue your own agenda. You're there to help them develop their agenda and then to prosecute it across Whitehall and also to make sure that they take decisions you know, in full awareness of the potential implications so you're there to sort of help them manage better and things like that. So I would say very easy to go in, get slightly seduced by the fact that you know, just walking into the office with your uh, carton of Diet Cokes, you appear on Sky News news feed and that you can nick number 10 notepaper and stuff like that and give it to your friends. The real thing to remember is that you are just doing another job and that all your authority comes to the Prime Minister. Do not expose them to anything uh, that they would not be not be pleased to defend. Even borrowing number 10 uh, notepaper. I, I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Gavin Barwell, Lord Barwell, Patrick Diamond, my colleague from Queen Mary University of London, and Jill Rutter, my colleague from uh, the UK and Changing Europe, for a fascinating discussion. If you enjoyed that, please come back for more of our podcasts. Do sign up to our mailing list to find out what's going on at the Myelin Institute. Uh, we have a Twitter feed. We have a uh, YouTube channel. All sorts of ways you can access what we're doing. Uh, but for now, Happy listening and thanks very much.